What's up, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of the Lights Out Podcast. I'm your host, Josh, and as you can see, I am not in my normal studio. In case you missed my last episode, I am now home for paternity leave. I have a baby coming, my first, in two or three weeks, and so I'm transitioning to home to help my wife get ready, and obviously after the baby comes, help her with all of that. And in the meantime, I'll probably be recording at least probably a month's worth of episodes here in my new temporary basement studio. So apologies, it's not as cool as my normal studio. I did my best to make it very lights out-ish. Again, Skelly is back. If you remember Skelly from the original studio, he is back at least, so that's some good news. But yeah, bear with me with the new studio. It's a different mic setup. Everything's a little bit different. So apologize that it's not exactly like it was, but hopefully you can still enjoy Lights Out. But today we are going to be diving into the absolutely haunting, unsolved Hinter Kaifek murders. This is one of those cases that after all of these years still just sends chills down my spine whenever I look into it, because what happened to this poor family is beyond brutal. And just all of the circumstances surrounding it is truly just bizarre and chilling. So that's what we're going to get into today. But before I get into the episode, I wanted to remind you that Mile Higher merch is out. I'm wearing the Haunted House design, which is probably one of my favorites. We still have some items left. So if you haven't checked out the new merch collection for Lights Out, do it now. We're running out of stock on a lot of items. And I'm not sure if we're going to restock this collection or not because we're already working on the Halloween collection, which I'm really excited about for this year. Also, the plush should be coming hopefully here in August. That is crossing my fingers, but I'm supposed to get the sample here pretty soon. I'm very excited about the exclusive limited lights out plush that will be coming. It's very cool. I'll unveil that hopefully here in the next couple of weeks. If you want to support it, but not pay any money, one way to do that is just subscribing to us on YouTube, Apple podcasts, and Spotify. It really does help us out. And you know, that's all of our metrics for the show's performance are measured in audio downloads. So making sure that you're also subscribed on Apple podcasts, it really does help me out quite a bit. But this episode of the podcast is also sponsored by Stamp.com and Talkspace. More on that later. But let's go ahead and dive right into the Hinterkaifeck murders. So out in the small Bavarian town of Grubbern, a large farmhouse sat on a quiet property in the early 1900s. This was known as the Hinterkaifeck Farm. About 40 miles north of Munich, this property was out in the deep rural wilderness. Farmland and dense forest surrounded the house, and the closest building was a neighbor's house, about 200 yards away, and an old church down the road. It was a Catholic church built in the 15th century, and the town cemetery sat right next door. The Gruber family was used to being in isolation. This was the simple life that they chose, and they had gotten used to it. In fact, they enjoyed it thoroughly. But this isolation from others would become a major problem, especially when strange things began happening on the farm. At the time, the Gruber family had six people living in the farmhouse. Andreas, who was 63 years old, Cecilia, who was 72, and their widowed daughter, Victoria, who was 35 years old. She had recently lost her husband in the World War going on at the time, as well as her two children, Cecilia, who was seven, and Yosef, who was two years old. There were rumors that Yosef was a product of incest since Victoria's husband was fighting in the war when he was conceived. So supposedly Andreas was Yosef's father and grandfather and rumors had spread throughout the small town. The family also lived with their maid, Crescens, and she would be the first to notice that something was very off about the house. 
Everything was going fine for the family and their farm up until the winter of 1921. Snow had covered the land and farming was put on hold until spring. During the day, the family would go out and feed the cows, you know, do the ranch chores, collect firewood, and stoke the fire in the chimney. The maid would get to work making meals and cleaning up around the house. But as the winter dragged on, the maid began noticing things around the house that no one else noticed. She began hearing footsteps in the attic. Even though she knew the rest of the family was outside or in other areas of the home, creaking noises would come from above. When she asked Andreas if anyone had been in the attic, he would say no, because no one had been up there for weeks at a time. Days passed, and it wasn't long until the maid began hearing voices up in the attic as well, almost like somebody was mumbling to themselves. Again, she asked the family if anyone had been up in the attic, and again, everyone denied it. Andreas even went up into the attic to check it out, but of course, nothing was there. It was the same as it always was, just a big empty room. There was no sign that any human had been up there, and it was empty, so there was no place for anyone to hide. Day after day, the maid kept complaining that something was making noise in the attic. Her bedroom was right below the attic, and every night she heard footsteps and disembodied voices. Soon she began hearing tapping noises coming from the walls around the house, and she would go to look, but nothing was there. And every time she complained to Andreas, the angrier he got, he thought that she was losing his mind, or that she was just trying to mess with him. Again, he would go up into the attic and search it, but nothing was there. Eventually, the maid became so frustrated and terrified of the house that she had to quit. She got no sleep in her bedroom, and was convinced that someone or something secretly lived inside of the home without the family's knowledge. So she packed up her things, left the property, and never returned. The Gruber family had relied on the maid's help to keep the household going through the winter, so they needed to find a replacement as quickly as possible. But they wouldn't find a new maid for the next six months. And during these six months, stress spread throughout the family. They finally realized how much work the maid did around the house. Along with everyone else raising the kids, tending the cattle, and chopping firewood, there was no time left to cover the chores that the maid used to do. But the good thing was is that no one reported hearing strange noises in the house anymore. There's no voices, there's no footsteps, and there was no tapping. And soon they were convinced that their previous maid had just been nuts. But as the winter dragged on, after a long and stressful day, Andreas finally broke down at the dinner table one evening. He choked on his words as he admitted to his family that he had heard the noises the whole time, and every day he kept checking around the house for a possible intruder. Over the last few months, he had become extremely paranoid and thought everyone's life was in danger. So after dinner, they teamed up and searched the entire house together. All at once, they checked every room, even the attic. They looked into every possible hiding place they could, but still they found nothing. But they did notice a few strange things. In fact, a few objects had actually moved around the house, and a set of house keys had gone missing. They figured that one of their family members probably just misplaced the house keys, so they didn't worry about it too much. But soon, everyone began hearing the noises around the home. Ever since Andreas opened up to his family about his paranoia, the paranoia spread like poison through the house. Footsteps creaked in the dead of night. Mumbling voices came through the walls. And now that the keys were missing, they began to think someone roamed through their house whenever they weren't looking. It was a pretty big farmhouse, and there were plenty of places to hide. At the beginning of winter, they had called the live-in maid a nut job, but now they were all convinced that she had actually been right the whole time. Something was in the house. But what? Things escalated when Victoria's seven-year-old daughter, Cecilia, went missing one day. She was nowhere to be found, and the family flew into a panic. As they frantically searched the house, they began to think the worst. 
They thought the person or thing creeping through their house had finally taken her. They ran out to the nearby woods and began screaming her name. And after an hour of searching, they finally found her. She was covered in dirt and out of breath. She was also confused and had no idea how she had gotten out there in the first place. So after bringing her back to the house, they tried to get her to explain what had happened to her. But no matter how many questions they asked, she wasn't able to explain any of it. Through all the mayhem, Andreas caught something out of the corner of his eye in the living room. A newspaper sat on a table, and it was opened up like someone had been reading it. He went over and picked it up, and after turning it to the front page, he realized it was a newspaper that he wasn't subscribed to, and no one in the family had subscribed to it either. So if that wasn't enough evidence that a stranger was in the house, someone actually tried to break into the tool shed a few days later. There was a basic lock on the door, and the family found several deep gashes in the metal, like someone had tried to break it open. They were all surprised that no one had heard anyone try to bust open the lock. The shed wasn't far from the house and the surrounding area was pretty quiet, so they don't know how they didn't hear the bashing of someone working on the lock. Or maybe they had used something to grind and gnaw at it, so it would have been a little bit quieter. But despite all these strange things continuing to happen, the family tried to carry on with their lives like they always had. They'd all been poisoned with paranoia, and the thought of someone sneaking around the house was always in the back of their minds. I mean, how can you blame them? But there was nothing they could do. No matter how hard they looked, they couldn't find the culprit behind all of the strange events. So they hoped for the long winter to finally pass. And maybe spring, whatever was in the house, would leave. But the problem wouldn't solve itself. It wasn't until early March of 1922 when their paranoia finally turned into full-blown panic. Andreas woke up one morning after a violent snowstorm had coated the property the night before. He was up by sunrise and he headed to the back door to take a peek outside. He expected to take in the beautiful wonderland of snow but instead he noticed deep footprints connecting the house to the nearby forest. No one had been awake before him, so he knew it wasn't any of his family members, and the deep trenches of the footprints were still fresh. As he looked closer, he noticed that there was no return set of tracks, and what's worse, the footsteps pointed in the direction of the house, and they stopped right at the door. So he could only assume that whoever made these tracks also made their way into the house. Andreas then slammed the door shut and woke up the rest of his family. He asked everybody if anybody had gone outside either late last night or early this morning. His wife, daughter, and grandkids all denied it, and no one had a clue who made the footprints. So he checked out every entrance. He desperately wanted to find footprints leading away from the house. That way he knew whoever came in left the house as well. He checked the front door, the side door, but the snow was untouched. He even checked all the windows, but still, there was absolutely no sign of anyone or anything leaving the house. At that point, he was 100% certain that someone was definitely inside. So Andreas began tearing through each room looking for the intruder, and the rest of the family watched in horror as he turned over mattresses and dressers, and he began yelling out, taunting the intruder. He even pulled down the attic staircase and stomped up the steps, and still he found no one. By then, he was angry as hell. He took his keys and locked every door to the house before leaving, and he then followed those footsteps in the snow all the way into the forest. After crossing the field, he lost the tracks near the tree line. He couldn't tell if the canopy of trees had affected the snow, or if the footsteps had just disappeared entirely. But it almost looked like something had suddenly appeared at the edge of the tree line and began trudging towards the house. He followed the footsteps back to the house, and from there he searched the tool shed, the barn, and the open fields, but still there was nothing. He finally decided to contact the nearest neighbor to see if they had seen anything. He also figured it was about time someone else knew about the batshit crazy things 
that were happening down in his property. They had kept it a secret since they didn't want to look like crazy nut jobs to everyone else in town. So that's when he reached out to Lorenz. Lorenz was a nearby neighbor who had dated his daughter Victoria a few years ago. His farmhouse was a few hundred yards away from their property. So he hiked through the snow, knocked on the door, and told Lorenz everything. He told him how the maid had quit, how he heard strange noises around the house, and someone had tried to break into his tool shed. He also told him that they had a pair of house keys go missing, and a random newspaper showed up in their house, and his granddaughter experienced a fugue state. And now, the footprints in the snow that led to his house. After Lorenz listened to everything, he didn't know what to make of it. And after thinking for a bit, he walked over to a nearby closet and pulled out a rifle. And he offered Andreas the weapon so that he could protect his family with it. But Andreas refused. After telling Lorenz everything, he realized how ridiculous he sounded. He thought he was just being paranoid and overreacting. The footsteps were probably just one of the farmhands or a drifter. Or maybe his daughter was keeping a secret lover. But he was glad to tell someone what his family had been going through. It just felt good to get all of that off of his chest. He said goodbye to Lorenz and headed out of the house. But on his way back to his farmhouse, he couldn't help but regret not taking the rifle. Maybe it was a sense of pride, or maybe he was in denial. But in the back of his mind, he kept thinking about that rifle. When he got back to the house, things seemed to go back to normal for a bit. They even got a bit of good news, for once, as they had finally found a new live-in maid. Her name was Maria, and she was 44 years old. They were all relieved that a new maid was finally on her way to the house, and they thought that maybe the added stress of housework had added to the paranoia. So now, maybe they could actually relax a bit more, as they had gone almost a half a year without a maid. And on March 31st, 1922, Maria arrived with her bags, ready to get to work. She greeted the family and unpacked her things in her new bedroom. And it finally seemed like everything was looking up after a very rough winter. But on that same day, all hell would break loose in the Hinterkaifeck farm. And unfortunately, Maria's arrival would be the beginning of the end. Before we get into what's next, take a quick break to thank our sponsors. So circling back, Maria the new maid has just moved in to the Hinterkaifeck farm. It's March 31st, 1922, and within the next few hours, the gates of hell are going to be opened, and the first sign of hell had crept inside the barn. Somehow over the next few hours, four members of the family were lured into the barn one by one. Some believe a member of the family had gone missing, so they each went around looking. Some think that the family might have been in a trance and walked into the barn under some sort of spell. Others think that whoever snuck into the barn spooked the animals so they began making noise and the whole family went out to check it out. Either way, for whatever reason, the four family members walked into the barn. Once they were inside, a figure jumped out of the shadows and struck them in the head with a tool called a mattock. It's a two-sided tool like a bladed pickaxe and an axe for chopping wood. After they were bashed over the head, their bodies fell limp and they were dragged to the corner of the barn and stacked in different positions. After a flash of violence, they were covered with hay, and they lied there until they slowly bled out and perished. Andreas, his wife Cecilia, his daughter Victoria, and their daughter Cecilia were all brutally murdered in the barn. After they were murdered, the two-year-old Yosef was killed in his crib, and the new maid Maria was killed in her bed. After this, four days passed, and the bodies remained where they were. And Lorenz, the neighbor, had no idea the entire family next door was murdered. Later in the day on April 4th, a repairman showed up to the farmhouse knocking on the front door. He had been scheduled to repair the feeding machine in the barn. He noticed the smoke coming from the chimney and that the lights were still on. And the family dog was inside barking, but no one answered the door. He even tried the back door, but there was still no answer. 
Luckily, the feeding machine was outside, so he didn't really need someone to get him access to the machine. So he figured he'd start the repair job anyway. He went down to the trail to the feeder machine and got to work. After finishing, he looked up back towards the house, and he noticed that the dog that had been barking from the inside the house was now chained up to a tree outside of the home. He thought this was extremely strange since no one had answered the door. So he went back up to the house and knocked on the door again. He knew someone had to be home, but still there was no answer. So he decided to walk over to Lorenz's house. He let Lorenz know that he was just over at the neighbor's house fixing the feeder, but no one had answered the door. So he told Lorenz to let the family know he had finished the work on the feeder and he would send them the bill by mail. Immediately, Lorenz remembered the strange encounter he had had with Andreas a few weeks back. He knew the family usually kept to themselves, but now he was very worried. There were also reports that Cecilia hadn't been to school since the first, and the family wasn't at church over the weekend. So Lorenz got a small search party together with some other neighbors and they went over to the property. The doors were all locked, but they noticed that the lights were on, and the dog was still chained up outside. They also noticed the barn doors were open and the animals were making noise, so they went to check that out first. And right away, they didn't notice anything unusual. The barn looked like it always had. It was a bit dark inside and the cattle were in their pens. When they walked a little bit further into the barn, they noticed a pile of hay in the corner, and that's when they spotted bloody human arms and legs poking out of the pile. And that's when they found the four family members that had been placed there four days ago. Their bodies were frozen stiff from the cold. Andreas was found with blood caked all over his face. His skin was shredded after his face had been bashed in multiple times, and the white of his shattered cheekbones poked out from his skin. His wife was found with multiple cracks in her skull as well as signs of strangulation around her neck. A black bruise coiled around her neck. Their daughter Victoria also had a shattered skull and signs that her face had been struck with a blunt object multiple times. But the worst of all was the body of young Cecilia. Her jaw was smashed and her throat had been cut. They also found clumps of hair in her clenched fists. Seemed like she had been alive the longest. An autopsy showed she was alive for several hours after the initial murders and it's believed she might have begun pulling out her hair while watching the rest of her family die. As for the maid, she was later found in her bed, dead with multiple blows to her head. Her first day as a maid at Hinterkaifeck Farms was also her last. As for the two-year-old boy, Yosef, he was found in his crib with his face caved in. When they started searching the house, there was no one there, but they noticed someone had been using the kitchen to cook food, and there were smoldering coals in the fireplace. Clearly, someone had been living in the house after the murders took place. But at the time, the search party didn't know four whole days had passed since the murders. When police investigated the crime scene, they realized that the massacre had happened on March 31st. So for those four days, someone or something had slept in the family's beds, ate their food, and taken care of their dog. They even milked the cows and did some chores around the ranch. But the police had no idea who would have done something like this. In a desperate attempt for more evidence, investigators made a gruesome decision. Supposedly, they decided to decapitate the victims' heads after the autopsies and send them to a clairvoyant in Munich. They were hoping that they could get any supernatural readings from the heads to explain what had happened. Since that's where the killer focused their blows, they thought the psychic could tell them something. But despite all this, they came up with nothing, no leads. Rumor has it that the heads were later lost or stolen in transit and the whole family had to be buried headless, which added another fucked up layer to the tragic story of the Gruber family. After the initial investigation, police figured their suspect was a drifter, you know, somebody who just didn't have a home or took advantage of the Gruber family's farmhouse, but they found large amounts of cash casually tucked away in the bedrooms, so if a drifter had come through, they didn't even bother to rob them. 
So if it wasn't a robber or a burglar who killed them, they thought it might have been a personal dispute, but they struggled to find a motive for that. There was no one in the family that they knew that had a grudge against them. But everyone knew Andreas wasn't the most popular farmer in the town. He was also known as a grumpy old man. And as rumors spread about incest with his daughter, he was liked even less. There were plenty of townspeople who didn't like him, but they couldn't find anyone who had hated him enough to kill his entire family. And they figured their neighbor Lorenz was possibly one of their only suspects, as he was the closest neighbor, and he had dated Victoria after his wife passed in 1918. He even had hopes of marrying her, but Andreas broke it off. There was even suspicion that Lorenz was actually the father of Yusuf. So that was the closest thing that they had to a motive. Apparently, Lorenz was seen by other members of the search party unlocking the farmhouse with his own keys before police arrived. Some believe these were the stolen keys from a few days earlier, but it wasn't unusual to give trusted neighbors a set of keys, you know, in case of an emergency. Still, Lorenz was the first one in the house and might have disturbed the bodies, but Lorenz had a farm and a family of his own to take care of, and he had two sons he raised by himself. So that would mean he committed the crimes and then hung around the property for four days without his family knowing. So for Lorenz being a suspect, the police were at a dead end. Theories stretch even further to try and pinpoint a person of interest. Even Victoria's dead husband, Carl, was brought into the spotlight. He had been reportedly killed in France in 1914 by a bombshell, but his body was never recovered. And this made people question whether or not he was actually dead. And since Victoria's son, Yusuf, was either a product of incest or Lorenz's son, Maybe Carl had a jealous motive, and the theory goes even further. Supposedly, after the end of the Second War, some prisoners of war returned home to Bavaria. They had been kept in Soviet prison camps for years, and they mentioned that they were sent home. And supposedly, after the end of the Second World War, some prisoners of war returned home to Bavaria. They had been kept in Soviet prison camps for years, and they mentioned they were sent home by a German-speaking Soviet officer who might have been Carl. The men who fought beside him in the First World War remembered him talking about how much he wanted to go live in Russia, and as the story goes, after he was believed to be dead, he returned home, deranged and jealous. He then killed his family and fled to Russia. He joined the Soviet army where he was stationed at a POW camp, and he admitted to the Bavarian prisoners that he was the one who killed the family on the Hinterkaifeck farm. Some of these prisoners later revised their statements, so their credibility didn't hold up very well but many still believe this deranged Soviet officer was Victoria's husband, Carl, and the horrors of war and jealousy drove him to insanity. But as years passed, the case remained unsolved. The house, the barn, and the tool shed had all been torn down, and a small memorial was placed nearby. It lists the name of everyone who died and still stands at the site today. Thank God they took the whole farmhouse down. The case continued on for decades, though, and the early investigation had been heavily criticized as they failed to take any fingerprints even though it was a common practice even then. And even if they could piece together a case, it'd be almost impossible to accurately identify a suspect without a doubt. Still, many more suspects came to light. In 1951, on her deathbed, a local woman claimed that one of her brothers had committed the murders. So the police looked into the brothers, Adolf and Anton Gump, but Adolf had already died back in 1944. And after taking the other brother into custody, they failed to build a case against him and he was dismissed in 1954. Again, the case went cold, but in 1971, a woman named Therese wrote a letter to local police. In the letter, she wrote about a memory from years ago. When she was 12, there were two boys named Carl and Andreas that she knew in town. They were family friends, and late one night, their mother had come over to her family's house in a panic. 
and frantically she told Teresa's mother about how her sons were the murderers of the Hinterkaifeck farm. She even said that one of her sons was upset that he had lost his pocket knife on the farm. In fact, when the farm was demolished a year after the murders, they had found a pocket knife in the yard, but no one knew who it belonged to. Police followed this lead to another dead end, and even the previous maid said she remembered seeing the same pocket knife in the yard long before she quit. As it turned out, this wasn't the only thing the maid knew. After more questioning, she mentioned three more men who could have been suspects. She had worked as a maid on the farm for about a year, and during that time, two brothers, Anton and Carl, worked as farmhands during the spring and summer months. Anton often worked during the potato harvest season, and he knew the property like the back of his hand. The maid said he often brought up the family and their secret wealth, and one time even told the maid that he thought the whole family should be dead. Also, Anton was one of the few people in the whole town that got along with the family dog. He never ever barked at him, so this might be why the dog was kept alive and taken care of after the murders. She also eventually believed that one of the disembodied voices she talked to in the house was actually Carl, Anton's brother, and they might have crept around the house at night. The maid's theory was that the two brothers and another farmhand named George committed the murders. George knew the family had a small fortune, and he was even the one who carved the wooden handle of the mattock, the murder weapon. He also knew that the tool was always kept in the barn, but still almost all the money was still in the house after the murders. So if robbery was the motive then they did an absolutely terrible job at taking the money. Also, as it turned out, the maid went on to claim that most of these disembodied voices were just more people around the farm talking through her window. She said that other people would come by at night and ask her about the family, but she swore she never told them anything. And apparently on the night of the murders around 3 a.m., a local farmer named Simon was on his way home when he saw two men at the edge of the forest near the farmhouse. When he lifted his lantern to look at them, the men hid their faces. Still. With all these interviews and eyewitnesses, the case went nowhere. Rather than looking at evidence or listening to eyewitnesses, the author Bill James decided to take a look at the patterns of the family murders. At the end of his research, he believed that the murders were committed by a man named Paul Mueller. Paul was a German immigrant to the U.S. and a suspect in the murder of an entire Massachusetts family in 1897. And in 1912, he was suspected of killing three more families, two in Colorado Springs and one in Kansas and the murderer even used a similar weapon to kill the families, a metal pickaxe. And he had also refused to take money from the properties. Afterwards, he might have fled back home to Germany after the police began investigating his crimes, and once he got back, he might have chosen the Gruber family as his next target. But after everything, after 100 interviewed suspects, an official prime suspect was never named in the case, and the last suspect was interviewed in 1986, and today anyone alive during the events are long gone. It's now been over 100 years since the murders. With the lack of modern forensics, the case led to every dead end possible. And in the end, police and investigators basically admitted that your guess is as good as theirs. The murders at the Hinterkaifeck farm have gone down in history as one of the strangest murders in the world. No motive was ever found. And the fact that the murderers stayed on the property for four days with the dead bodies makes it all that more disturbing. They left behind more questions than answers. And after all the interrogations and finger pointing, the mystery was never solved and will likely never be solved at this point. There was such little evidence left behind that some began thinking the murders could have been the work of something paranormal. Maybe the footsteps, the tapping, the disembodied voices were from a spirit that infested the house. But one thing's for sure, whoever or whatever killed the Gruber family was one deranged, fucked up individual who surprisingly had a soft spot for dogs. And no matter what disturbing secrets the family had kept, they obviously did not deserve the tragic end that they were given.
this case is just truly, truly mind boggling and just terrifying to think about that a family was potentially stalked by individuals, which could have explained all the weird noises and footsteps and tapping that they heard that whoever did it, if it wasn't human, literally was trying to terrify them, make them go crazy before they carried out the murders. The possibility of this being something paranormal is interesting, but again, from what we know from history and hauntings and even demonic activity, nobody's ever been killed by a spirit before directly. So to me, that sort of rules out the possibility that this was some sort of demonic entity or poltergeist or spirit that committed these brutal, brutal murders with a pickaxe. I think the most likely scenario is that it was Anton and Carl and perhaps George. It would make sense. I think there is definitely more going on with this family than we even know. And perhaps there was some incest or cheating going on. And perhaps this was out of jealousy. But then again, why would they kill Victoria as well if that was what they really wanted? It's a truly mind-blowing case. The fact that somebody after committing such brutal murders then stayed in the house for four days, continued living while their bodies were nearby, is just crazy to think about. Absolutely insane. But it could have also been somebody completely unrelated. It could have just been a random killing as well. My gut feeling is that this wasn't a random killing, that it was somebody that knew them because they clearly knew their way around the house. And the dog, the dog wasn't going off like crazy. The dog was outside just hanging out. I really think that this was probably Carl or Anton. With that being said, I want to know what you think of this case. Who do you think committed these heinous murders? Let me know in the comments below if you're watching on YouTube or let me know on social media at Lights Out Cast on Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok. But I'm going to go on and wrap up today's episode there. Thank you again for joining me for another episode of Lights Out. I hope you found this one intriguing. I sure did. But I will see you guys in my next episode. And until then, Lights Out everybody.